I didn't know I was supposed to write a song and have a hand at it. Overachiever. Yeah. It's all. It's awfully good to be with you all today. Um, usually, I presume you usually look for someone who has some experience and or is well versed on whatever subject you're asking them to speak on. Um, this is actually the very first time that I've ever brought a lesson on Esther. So, uh, it's buckle up, I guess. But I do have a pedigree on Esther. I am married to one, and we have a couple in training. So, I'm working it out. Ladies, as we go through the material, not just for my lesson period, but for the entire week, I hope you can see yourself in Esther. I hope that you see yourself in Esther and you. I hope that you see that spirit that she had. Men, I hope that you are or want to be married to an Esther. And if you have daughters, to raise Esthers and find Esthers for your sons to marry. And for all of us, there are Christ-like elements in Esther's character which are befitting the Bride of Christ. And we would all do very well to look at her, look at her example, look at her resolve, look at her action, and be able to emulate that as we follow Christ ourselves. We'll probably wind up hitting that the hardest because I think it's the larger issue and we will, we will hit the others for sure. And I, they're going to intermingle too where, you know, if we're people of virtue, then one thing will follow the other. A true beauty in a beauty culture. A true beauty compared to what? You know, I'm, I'm reminded whenever we look at Esther, she is, she is in ways one of a kind, not unlike Eve, where when Eve was created from Adam's rib, we know what Adam said. I wonder what his reaction was, because he really had no one except for himself to compare her to. And I don't know about you guys, but I think God did pretty well. Today, in regards to a true beauty, I'd like to talk about three ways. One, she was a true beauty in her own right, not unlike Eve. She was a true beauty compared to those of her time. And then she was also true beauty for all time. Even her name. Now Esther, it depends on what reference you appeal to, uh, because the I think the, the scholars and the anthropologists are all over the map with, where did she get the name Esther? They're pretty settled on Mordecai, and I'm going to angle this, I'm going to, I'm a hack, so Mordecai 
thing is that if I concentrate on trying to make sure that I pronounce it right, I'm going to muff my lines. So I, I will probably continue referencing him as Mordecai. Um, but they're pretty settled on where he got his name, and it's not unlike a lot of the uh, a lot of the other individuals of Jewish descent. Whenever they go into whenever they go into slavery, they wind up being assigned, especially if they're men of prominence. They wind up being assigned a name after uh, one of the the deities of those people, and that their Marduk is one of their chief gods, as far as the Persians were concerned. They it's they're pretty settled on Mordeca uh, Mordecai uh, getting his name. From, from that descent. There was a goddess named Ishtar uh, that was uh, a Persian name that some believe that Esther's name was drawn from. Uh, Persian reference to star. Uh, and then there was uh, there's some that believe that her name Esther is after the Median or the Mede, the Medes and Persians name or word Astra which would have been a transliteration of what Hadassah was, and it's a reference to the myrtle tree. And I'd like to talk about that in a little bit as well. The Jews, a lot of the Orthodox Jews even today, believe that Esther came from a Jewish word. Uh, Hester, just slap an H on the front as far as the English rendering of the name, and the meaning for that is hiddenness. In which case, there are several ways that that would apply to her in regards to it being the hidden person of the heart, in regards to her hiding the fact that she is a Jew, in which case, at what point in the future time she's able to reveal this to great effect. Uh, I imagine there are several reasons why Orthodox Jews would prefer that being the rendering as far as Esther is concerned. But Steve's already mentioned her given name was Hadassah, and that is to mean myrtle or the myrtle tree. And it's it's a tree that's generally native to the promised land. It's native to the land of old. And here, here you have this child, this baby, this baby girl born in a foreign land, and she gets this, this name which references home once again. What is the nature of the myrtle tree? The nature of the myrtle tree, it's not imposing. It's about 30 feet tall or so. It's evergreen, and as, as we kind of go down these bullet points, uh, each of these items, and I'm obviously not going to spend a lot of time on each of these items, but each of these items you could flesh out in regards to how does that, how does that reference and how do we see that manifested in the person who was Esther. She was not imposing. Uh, she was evergreen. Uh, she grew ab abundantly throughout Israel. I say she the myrtle tree, grew abundantly throughout Israel, particularly in the areas of Samaria, Galilee, and Jerusalem. The leaves were small, they were shiny and leathery, and they were slightly scented. The blossoms, either white or pink, had a fragrant aroma. And then whenever it came time to bear fruit, the, the blue blackberries on that tree were actually so sweet and so aromatic that they were actually crushed and used in perfumes. And so we see this progression in regards to Esther. She's born, she's raised, and at each season of her life, she becomes all the more sweet until at the culmination whenever she is actually able to deliver her people. It is such an aromatic uh, praise to God 
the thing that she does at the potential cost that she was willing to risk. The Myrtle in Scripture is categorically associated with deliverance. And I'll just, I'll just offer the references here. In Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 15, the people were instructed to use the myrtle tree for the construction of booths by Nehemiah. And the Feast of Booths commemorated their deliverance from the land of Egypt. Isaiah chapter 41 verse 19, it's actually incorporated into the message and prophecy that we know with, with great certainty was the message that John the Baptist was delivering in preparing the way for the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 13, the myrtle is referenced as a memorial and an everlasting sign. Again, an everlasting sign of what? The deliverance of people. The deliverance of God's people from their sin. And in Zechariah chapter 1, verses 8, 10, 11, in through that passage and into the, the letter of Zechariah or the book of Zechariah, it references the myrtle tree in regards to deliverance from the nations as well as a prophecy and foreshadowing of the Messiah as well. The myrtle, Hadassah, pleasant, but not imposing. Its charms were subtle, yet compelling. And we see that in Esther. We see this in her nature and in her relationships. And I'd like to, to look at a passage in regards to uh, Esther. In Esther chapter 2, and I'd like to look at the relationship that she and Mordecai shared. In Esther 2, beginning in verse 8. So it came about when the command and decree of the king, Ahasuerus or Xerxes, were heard, and many young ladies were gathered to Susa, the capital into the custody of Haggai, that Esther was taken to the king's palace, into the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. Now the young lady pleased him and found favor with him, so he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and food, gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace, and transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem. Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. And every day Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. Here a lot of times these days, and I, I believe that it's generally unbelievers that I'm hearing this from, but they just they just can't wait to get the kids out of the house. They just say, oh, 18 can't come soon enough. You know, it's such a drain, you know. And, uh, you know, there's so much trouble. They're at that age and what have you like that. I like the way that it's stated here is that there were already many young virgins who'd already been gathered to Susa. And the statement is made that Esther had to be taken. Esther was taken. I don't believe that Mordecai, and I, I, I don't believe that Mordecai, you know, was, was, trying to, uh, was trying to keep what was going to happen from happening, per se. But you get this sense in their relationship that Mordecai, and then he paces. How often does he pace out in front of the building where she lives? Every day. Every day. He loved that girl. 
He loved that girl. And he strained for the least word on how she was doing. Fathers, you know how sometimes you just can't be bothered? Had a rough day. Getting ready to offer a lesson later on in the day in the afternoon. And it's all wild and crazy. We're going on a trip. Be like Mordecai. Be ready to wait. Strain to see what good comes to your daughters, comes to your children. Hey, guy, what about her relationship with him? We know that he was taken with her. But do we know why? Well, she, she was a pretty girl. Well, yeah, I imagine there were, imagine there were a bunch of pretty girls. Let's look at verse 12. I want to read down through the next three verses there. Now, when the turn of each young lady came to go into King Ahasuerus after the end of her 12 months under the regulations for the women, for the days of their beautification were completed as follows, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices in the cosmetics for women. The young lady would go into the king this, in this way. Anything that she desired was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. Verse 15. Now when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughters, came to go into the king, she did not what? She did not request anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the women, advised. And Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. She's pretty and low maintenance. <laughs> now you got something. And it wasn't as if, oh, I, she, are, she already knows her mind. Oh, she, she already, she knows better what, what to do and, and how, to, how to do this. It's not like this guy didn't do it for his living. She, she could take some advice, especially when she recognized the advice giver should know what they're talking about. Are you listening, Esthers? This is good stuff. And I think that that had a lot to do with why he was taking it. It wasn't just her beauty, but with the way that she carried herself and the way that she interacted, uh, the honey, honey gets the the bees, right? Or the flies or whatever whatever the honey gets. I think it depends on what country you speak that adage. We're an American. I don't know what, what it is here. Thank you. Now, Esther was, was, she was low maintenance and she was compliant, but I don't ever want us to think that she was compliant and low maintenance because she didn't know her mind. It was not because she did not have an opinion. Because we see in the story of Esther, as it goes on, is that it's not that she doesn't have an opinion or a belief or an idea. It's that she's waiting. She's waiting. 
She's waiting on the Lord. She's adhering to the command and the advice of Mordecai until such a time she can act. Esther, pleasant but not imposing. Hadassah, subtle yet compelling. And these Persian men do not know what they're getting hit by. They're getting hit by a true beauty. I'd like to take a look. She was a true beauty compared to those of her time. Mordecai did such a wonderful job with her. There was a, a study released uh, not two, two weeks ago, referred to as the, uh, the Shriver Report, Snapshot, an insight into the 21st century man. And if you recognize the name Shriver, that's right, it's of the Kennedys. But I think that the, the observations here are probably very honest. I'd like to read you just an excerpt. The Shriver Report snapshot an insight into the 21st century man reveals an eye-opening disparity between the qualities contemporary men feel are paramount in a wife and or partner and what they value for their daughters when they grow up. Intelligence was cited as an important quality in both a partner and a daughter. Amazingly, 66% of the men describe wanting an independent daughter, yet only 34 mention independence in their partner. Men highlight principled and strong as desirable qualities for a daughter, but are much less likely to want a daughter to be sweet and attractive, qualities they do value more in a female partner. And that's the excerpt. That's as far as I'm going to go. It's, it's out there if you want to read more. But you understand how this wouldn't work. Is that if men are all so all fired about raising independent, strong, principled girls, and they're not going to marry one of them, how many generations does it take you before you have a generation of unmarriageable women? And I'll be quite honest, when I went looking, I went looking for sweet and attractive and intelligent and God-fearing. But you see, in regards to God-fearing, in regards to being a God-seeker, in regards to following after Jesus Christ, you can't have it both ways. And you want that strength. You want that principle. Unbeknownst on the front end, I was getting a lot more than I originally was looking for in my escrow. A lot I would have needed, but I wouldn't have known to ask for. 
In regards to the those com those of her time that we could compare Esther to, uh, some of the material that I looked at actually typified Vashti as a feminist. Queen Vashti as a feminist. And that was the reason that she would not go to the king when the king hailed for her. It wasn't that she felt that it would be unwise, because, but that's that's the way I've always heard the story goes, that, well, he doesn't, that's not smart. That That really shouldn't, he really shouldn't be doing that. But there is the possibility that she she actually she wouldn't be degraded because she wouldn't submit to that type of she wasn't going to have a man telling her what to do. And some of the material typified her potentially that way, a Gloria Steinem in your face type feminist, versus this post feminist Esther. Where was Esther not strong? No, Esther was strong. Was she feminine? Yes, she she was still feminine. Was she subtle yet effective? I think it's the subtlety sometimes that gets past the feminists of any era and any age. And did she not have an agenda? It's interesting in Esther chapter 5 and verse 5. When Esther makes her first request of the king to come to that first feast, it is said that the king was, was hasty to do what she had said. Ladies, why would you do a thing yourself when you can get a guy to do it for you? And I tell you the truth, that is, that is the design that God has set out. That the husband be the protector and provider for the home. Where if we fulfill the roles that we've been given in the scripture, and that Esther emulated in her own life, is that we will be hasty to do the thing that you ask us to do if we're a God-fearing man. And I have to repent myself over and over and over. Quite frankly, there are times that I needed to be forcefully dealt with, with the force of personality and character and principle. And my Esther, shame on me, there have been times that I know she had to have thought when she came, when she was going to come to me and she was contemplating coming to me, the thought occurred to her, if I perish, I perish. <laughs> Shame on me. Shame on me. Did that even have to cross her mind? We don't want to be a Hagiurasis, men. And if we want more Esthers, we've got to train them, and then we need to be ready for what's next. If Esther does mean star, she outshone Vashti, 
She outshone the other virgins of the land. She outshone Haman. She outshone all the haters of the Jewish people. She outshone the king. She outshone the rulers of her own people, those who would have been king and the priests of her people. And in the end, Esther's true beauty even really outshone herself. Appreciate Steve and his overview, and he made reference to a couple of these passages. I'd like to turn to First Peter chapter three. She was a true beauty for all time. And we could easily compare her to another true beauty for all time. Back in First Peter chapter three. I'm going to begin in verse 3. Let not your adornment be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You realize in Genesis chapter 12, by the best mathematical figuring, at the age of 75, Sarah turned the head of Pharaoh. I'm not going to ask for any 75-year-old women to raise their hands here. <laughs> when Abimelech took her in Genesis chapter 20, she likely was 90 years old. That's not 1919. That's 9090. Still turning the heads of men. You know what's even greater? She turned the head of God. She turned the head of God. And if you're like Sarah, ladies, and you're like Esther, you too will turn the head of God. And in doing so, I guarantee you, you will turn the heads of God-fearing men. When Haman threatened, Esther did not react to her adversary. She responded. There's a difference. There's a difference between reacting and responding. See, King Ahasuerus and Haman shown themselves to be reactors. Vashti doesn't come to the feast. Oh, what are we going to do? Well, let's see what the law says about it. Guess what? Well, I didn't say anything about it. Oh, we got to write a law about that. We're going to write a lot about it. And they wrote a law about that. Reacting. Oh, I've been hurt. I've been offended. Oh, I'm going to react. I'm going to return evil for evil. Can't do that. Esther doesn't do that. Natural. 
She did not do what came naturally. She did what came supernaturally. Because natural is thinking about yourself. That's natural, right? We all get that, right? It's natural for us to think about ourselves. That's easy. That's an easy default. We don't have to check in with anyone else but ourselves. That's natural. But it's supernatural to think about somebody else. Supernatural is to attain to a higher calling. And though the flesh caused her to pause, Esther, she did what one does for family. And when I say family, it's not just Mordecai, though it was Mordecai that made the appeal, but for more than Mordecai. It was for the people of God. It was for her family, Israel. And Mordecai was not asking for Esther to call on a reserve that she did not have, nor do I believe that this was likely the very first time that they'd have a conversation about something such as this. It's very interesting because when it came time for action, we'd seen Esther demure, perhaps, on the face of it. But in chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, it ain't Mordecai who's given the orders anymore. Esther says, I fast, and the connotation is pray. I fast and pray, you fast and pray, and you have everyone of the family of God in this region fast and pray. And I believe that she was doing a thing that she'd been practiced in doing. This is bad. What are we going to do? What am I going to do? Well, she, she could have just gone into the king. But then that would not have been acknowledging the higher calling. In my life, is it going to be about me? Or is it going to be about God and his people? Esther asks you this question. And I'm not just talking to the ladies. Esther asks every single one of us that question. Is it going to be about me? Or is it going to be about God and about His people? See, the culture, the beauty culture, makes it about you. You know what you want to look like? This is what you want to look like. Until that becomes passe and say, oh no, you've got to look like that. No, you got to look like that. It's a never-ending shell game. And that's what's natural. That is the way of men. You know what? If we make it about God and His people, God will make it about us. God turns it back on us. We see that in Esther. That is the end game. Deliverance. Deliverance not only for Esther, not only for Medicaid, not only for those of her immediate household, but deliverance for the entire people of Israel. I'd like to turn to a passage here in Philippians chapter 2. And in 
in the actions and in the result of what Esther did, was Esther's name not exalted? Are we not talking about her today? Was not Mordecai's name exalted? Pretty much like none other in his time, for sure, in the Persian Empire at the time that he lived and the time that he came to preeminence. And so we see in them an emulation of these Christ-like qualities. And Paul writes to the Philippians here, If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, and if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. And we're going to hear about selfishness and empty conceit when we talk about Haman. Right? And again, we can go right down through this passage and we can assign the various attributes that we find in the Scripture to the characters in the Esther narrative. Do nothing uh, from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Esther had to be told, hey, if you don't take the risk, you're not going to survive either anyway. And Mordecai had to offer what potentially could have been a very offensive message to Esther. And did Esther have to take it? Esther's queen of the Persian Empire. She's a God-fearing woman first. And always. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't have to do this. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know what, Esther, when she walked into the queen, to the king to make her request, she was a dead man walking. She was a dead man walking. And Jesus, while carrying His cross, while He was not on that cross yet, Jesus was a dead man walking. It was as good as done. You know why? Because Jesus loves you. It was as good as done. Because it wasn't about Jesus. It wasn't about the beauty culture. It wasn't about fitting into what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had constructed as this is what the Messiah is. Esther went into the king and 
Her attitude was, if I die, I die. Esther died that day. Esther died to herself. Esther died to herself. Just as Jesus, every day that Jesus lived on the face of this earth, Jesus died to himself. Because he didn't have to do it. And if it was about him, if it was just about him, he didn't need to come. You know what? He was willing to take the risk. He was willing to take the risk because the reward was immeasurable. I look forward to the other lessons this weekend. So much to be had. There's so many things and lessons that we can take from Esther and all those that are involved in the Esther account. Who we don't want to be, who we should be like, ways that we can incorporate those attributes into our lives, how we can become better and better servants for God and for Christ. Jesus will take you as you are. I'm going to sing 605 out of the Red Books at this time. Jesus will take you as you are today. And He can work a miracle in you in that He can save you from your sins, but then He can highly exalt you with Him by helping you walk in obedience as He did and working that miracle in your life day by day by day. As He carried His cross, He has implored us. Luke chapter 9, He who wants to come after me must take up His cross daily and follow me, just as Christ did every day. He walked on the face of this earth and now He lives to advocate for us before the face of the Father. If you would like to make Jesus Christ the Savior of your life, if you would like deliverance from Jesus from your sin today, we encourage you to come forward as we stand and sing.